Well, we are through Christmas and we are back into our lesson in Acts. We took a break to study on the truth of Christmas, but now it's back to business. If you remember, we left off talking about hospitality and how Lydia's hospitality really affected Paul and his, and his friends, and it became a lifelong relationship with them. We talked about how hospitality to people in the church, people we meet, means a big deal in their reflection of Christ, how they think about Christ. I think I've mentioned earlier in other sermons that they have surveys of waitresses and waiters and people in that industry. And according to them, their worst day that they hate is Sundays. And they said because it's church people that come out, all of us after church, and we're grumpy, we're complainers. This is, from, this is just an unsolicited question. And from being with church people for so many years, they're not wrong in every area. What does that tell you about us? <laughs> that people in the world don't like us coming there because we don't act Christ-like. How do we treat people on the street? How do we treat people in the church? So we're going to pick up after we left Lydia's house. Now, we don't know much time has passed since then, but what we do know is that the time they spent at Lydia's helped them to be encouraged to keep pushing on. Now, if you remember, their friendship was unique in Paul's writings. He mentions her a couple of times in various gospels or in various epistles. So they leave Lydia's and they keep on walking and preaching as they went. In Acts 16, verse 16, it says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which he predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, the first part of that, you hear what this girl is saying. Does it sound wrong? I mean, it sounds okay. It might not seem too bad. I mean, she's telling people to listen to these guys. They're talking about salvation. But we're going to look at this for a moment to see where, why Paul was so upset with this. Now, the phrase, spirit by which he predicted the future, the word is divination. It literally means to foresee or to be inspired by a little g, God. And we know that's forbidden in the Old Testament, right? God says none of that. Don't go there. Israel was sent into captivity because of divination, or partly because. 2 Corinthians 17, 17, or 2 Kings 17. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Saul lost his kingdom because he sought out a medium, divination, 1 Chronicles 10. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So first off, we know that what this girl was doing was wrong. God 
clearly condemns it in the Old Testament. So anything attached to what she was doing would be wrong. It's, it's pragmatism. You ever heard that word pragmatism? The ends justify the means. Well, if she's doing something good, it doesn't really matter how she's doing it to get there, is what that means. And so because she was practicing divination, every fruit of that ministry, whatever she was doing, was considered evil by God. If you remember when Saul consulted the medium, God actually allowed Samuel to come up, real Samuel. And if you, the, the medium was scared by that, was startled. That tells me that it's never happened to her before and she was a fraud to begin with. But it also, God let it happen to show Saul what was gonna happen to him. And just because she was able to do it doesn't make it right. Now I know that nobody here reads horoscopes, does fortune telling, nobody does seances, right? Nobody has their palms read, nobody uses star charts, nobody watches those shows on TV. The Long Island Medium. There was one that, uh, I forget what the guy's name was, he would talk to the dead. I forget what his name was, he was on TV for a while. When you do this, you are opening yourself up to, if not demon possession, at least demon oppression. Now, if you're a Christian, you can't be possessed, but you can be severely oppressed by the enemy if you open yourselves up to this. The game Ouija, there's now a movie called the Ouija Board. All this stuff, you're opening yourself up to demonic activity, and it's exactly what was happening with this girl. Now, we don't need to fear those spirits. We don't need to fear them. But neither are we to seek them out for help. Saul, when he did that, he was... At the end of his wits, he figured, well, one last shot. I'll go talk to a medium. How many of us now, I hope I don't make anybody mad. When you have a funeral of a loved one, how many have ever said or thought that your loved one is looking down on you? That does not happen. Your loved one does not turn into an angel. Your loved one does not interact with you after they're gone. They do not talk to you. They do not lead you or guide you or anything else. Your loved one is in heaven. If they're a believer, they're in heaven, disconnected from you. If they were able to look down and see your life, they would no longer be full of peace and joy because your life, we're still here. So when your loved one's gone, they're gone. All you have is a memory. They don't interact, they don't talk to you, they don't lead you, they don't speak to you in your sleep. None of that stuff's true. But how many know people that really live for that? They know that Aunt Susie's helping me. They know that my dad is just, he's guiding me with his, no. None of that stuff's true. So if you think that, not true. God is our source for wisdom. God's our source for help period. Now it seems that they were, they were approached by her. She came to them. They didn't go to her. She came up to them. And if she is demon possessed, then we assume that her intervention in their life was meant to stop what they were doing. Would that be a good assumption? That if the enemy's coming to assault what God was doing, the goal was to stop it. 
Whenever you have something like this come up in your life, it seems good, but if you know the source of it, you can believe that whatever that source is is meant to stop the good that you're doing for the Lord. So verse 16 says, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. Doing things that God forbids doesn't always mean instant bad things are gonna happen to you. It may mean things are good. The enemy may give you things you wanna have. Living in sin, a sinful life may result in monetary gain or other types of what we would think as blessings. You don't believe that? Look at any politician. <laughs> they seem to have a lot of material things, but I'm going to venture out on a limb to say that most of them don't follow God. <laughs> Not all, but most. And seeking out the future may work. This girl was possessed by an enemy, by the enemy, and she was able to accurately predict the future because her, the masters were making money off of it. So she must have been right. So it worked. Just because something works doesn't always make it right to do. The enemy will always make things look attractive and beneficial to you without telling you the consequences of those choices. Verse 17 says, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. So what's wrong with that statement? Is, is she saying the truth? Yes and no. To us reading it, we would say she is telling the truth. But again, you have to understand who is listening to her. Who is the recipient of her yelling that? Those who are hearing her, they're hearing something else. They're hearing something that they want to hear that's not necessarily the truth. Think about the logic here. If this girl's demon-possessed and the enemy wants to stop what God's doing, why would she be telling them the truth? In fact, when Paul was preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Lord, she physically couldn't say it. First, First Corinthians 12, three says, therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if she's demon possessed, obviously can't be filled with the Holy Spirit, is not going to be telling them the truth is gonna be telling them something that sounds like the truth, but is a little off. It sounded true to Paul and Silas, but she was aiming it at those around them to tell them something different. Now, what do I mean by that? She's yelling this to the Gentiles. In fact, she's yelling it. Most commentaries say she's screaming it, an annoying scream. These were folks who were still enslaved by the Romans, or at least under their tyranny. And to her listeners, the phrase was something that they wanted to hear. They wanted to be free and saved from Roman tyranny. That's what they were hearing. When she's saying, these, these guys are telling you how to be saved, they're thinking, great. These guys are telling us how to get out from under Rome. Not, not Jesus, not salvation. They want to be free from Roman oppression. Exactly what happened when Jesus walked. Everyone thought Jesus' goal was to free them from the Roman tyranny, when in fact, it wasn't. And when it didn't happen is when people got let down and, and wanted to crucify him. 
And so when they're hearing these things saying, they're thinking, great, these are the guys that are going to tell us how to get out from under Rome. Not salvation. And this was something that the people wanted to hear. And she was diverting their attention from salvation, from sin, to salvation from Rome. And she was using these men to attract more people to herself, which would increase her value to her owners, probably better her life. Things that she was saying was ultimately for her benefit. How how often do we see that today? Not the divination so much, but using the Bible out of context to appease and to please those who are listening to it. She's saying what we construe as truth, but in reality, wasn't preaching it at all, preaching something different. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. Who doesn't want to have more money, nicer things? Who doesn't want to be blessed? We talked a couple of Wednesdays ago on how much money is enough. And Gil says, just a little bit more. No matter what you have, just a little bit more is going to help. I love to listen to sermons that tell me how I'm going to be blessed and how God's going to pour money in my lap. And if I just, if I just give $100, God is going to give me $1,000. How many have heard that? Shaken well, pressed together, pushed on. God wants me to be wealthy. Or, hey, your lifestyle is just great with God. How many of you have heard someone say, me and God have a relationship? Or me and God have a deal? Or God understands what I'm doing? When the truth is, none of that's true. The slave girl was appealing to the needs and the wants of the people. And isn't that what happens when you hear sermons that tickle your ears? Sounds good. Sounds biblical. They use scriptures. But in the end, it's not true because they take the scriptures out of context. They say something that was meant for something else, but it sounds good to you. Shaken together, pressed together, pushed on. That sounds great. But read the rest of it. Read the entire scripture. The Bible, you're supposed to interpret the Bible with the Bible. In other words, if one sentence appears to be different, it appears to say something that you're not sure about, what does the rest of the Bible say about that particular topic? If everything else says, well, that sentence can't mean that, it has to mean something else. There's an adage that says you can prove anything you want with the Bible. Anything. Just grab one verse and you can prove it. The Bible says curse God and die. It says it. Does that mean we have to curse God and die? No. We know the story. What she was saying was accurate, but not true. There's a movie out, it's an older movie, it's called Absence of Malice. Anybody ever hear of it? It's a Paul Newman movie back from 1980. But in the very end of the movie, she's a reporter and and 
throughout the whole movie, things were happening if you haven't seen it. And somebody asks her, were you in a relationship with Paul Newman, his character? And she says, yes. And the reporter instantly says, is that true? And she says, no, but it's accurate. Something can be accurate and not true. The Bible says, curse God and die. That is accurate. But it's not true. If you read the context, you know what that sentence is about. There's a lot of things we may hear that sound accurate, and what she was saying was accurate. They're telling you the way to be saved. But what she was saying wasn't true. Verse 18 says, she kept this up for many days. So this must have been working for her. People must have been gathering around. They were listening to her, probably following her. So while she was technically accurate, people were being led away from the truth. Verse 18 says, finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. The demons screaming or her screaming in the crowds was getting more attention than the preaching of the gospel. It was interfering with Paul and what he was doing and he had enough. He finally had to confront the situation and turn to her and command the demon to leave. When sinful practices actually divert people from the truth, we as Christians need to take a stand and come against that. The Bible says, I think it's Galatians, if you see someone caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. That means you gotta approach them. You gotta challenge them on their lifestyle. You gotta show them what the Bible says about whatever it is they're doing or not doing. When things are coming in that stop what God's doing, you need to take a stand. When others try to use language that sounds spiritual but takes people away from the truth, we need to be aware of that. We need to be sensitive to what we're listening to. Gil and I, and there was an article on Facebook by Christianity Today. Was it Christianity Today or Charisma, one of those magazines? Yeah. And if you, how many read those magazines? Good. Because they're, they're really not great. And they sound good, and there's a lot of good things in them, but you have to separate the wheat from the chaff when you read that kind of stuff. Because not everything in there I would consider true, helpful, right. They tend to lean a little bit, in my opinion, to the left. Gil thinks they lean a lot to the left. <laughs> they tell you great things, kind of like a Joel Osteen type of magazine. While not true, they tend to garner listeners, people like to hear and read that kind of stuff. As believers, we have to make sure that we confront that stuff and make it known that these are like that. When others try to use language that sounds spiritual, we have to be sure, A, that we're listening with a discerning ear and then be able to refute it when we can. There's a whole bunch of teaching out there and most of it's pretty good. I listen to some of it when it's out there. But there are also some that's out there that are just plain wrong. <laughs> How many know that? A lot of, quote, Christian TV and radio, they're out there, but they're not right. 
How many of you ever gone to a, a bookstore? The bookstores are getting few and far between now, but if you walk into a bookstore, you'll see a section, either it's called spiritual or it's called Christian, and there's a whole ton of books in that section. Not every book in that section is worth reading. How many know that? Just because it says Christian on it doesn't mean it's good. In fact, it may mean just the opposite. And we have to have what we're going to see Paul has, a discerning of spirits. I assume that she did not come up to him and tell him she was demon-possessed. And probably nobody else told him that either. And she's following him around, saying things that sounded right. How did he know that it was a demon? Unless the Holy Spirit gave him the gift of discerning of spirits. We need to always be alert to the things that are around us, things we listen to, things we read. You know, it's easy when you, when you read or watch something that you know is not Christian. You're ready for that. You're okay. You, you know what's bad and what's good. It's when you see something that poses as Christian or true, that's when you've got to be careful. Because if you read it and you think it's an authoritative source, you may believe everything that's written in there. We need to have discernment. We need to have wisdom. Because not everything that sounds good actually is good or true. How many have had that, that check in your spirit about different things? That's the Holy Spirit. And if you're sensitive to that, hopefully you'll listen to that and pay attention when it happens. Now, I've, I've used this example before. We're having a week of prayer beginning next Sunday. And it's not just an add-on. I know the AG does it once a year for the first week. But it should be something that we don't just do the first week, but we should do all the time. Because when you, when you do take time to read and pray, it strengthens that spirit within you to be able to listen and have that discernment. We have the old angel and devil on your shoulder. How many know have seen that movie? Cartoon. Well, that's true. The one you feed is the one that's going to win the fight. So if you're always in your Bible, the angel is going to get bigger and bigger. The Holy Spirit's going to get strong and strong. The devil's going to get weak. And so when something comes up your way, you're going to have that discerning. The Holy Spirit's going to speak to you, and you're going to listen, and you're going to do or not do what he says. However, if you're never in God's word, you never read, you never pray, guess who's going to grow bigger? And so when that challenge or that decision comes up, or that choice you have in front of you, guess who's going to win that temptation? The enemy's going to win that temptation because the Holy Spirit's going to have a still moment, and you're not going to hear it. But the enemy is going to be there loud and clear in your mind. We have to have that discerning. The number one thing I pray for all the time is wisdom. Wisdom. For everything, anything. All of James is about wisdom. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom. I want to know what God wants. I want wisdom on how to handle situations. We need to be sensitive to those checks in your spirit. 1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if they have the Spirit that comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. Not everything you hear and listen to and read is true. And we need to be sensitive to the Spirit so that God shows us 
How many have ever read an article or a book or heard a sermon and as you're listening to it or as you're reading it, something just doesn't seem right? It's like, that's not right. That's the Holy Spirit giving you that check so you're able to discern it and you know that's not from God. Verse 19 says, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything, but presumably the commentaries I read believe believe that she got saved because of that. When people come to Christ, usually, hopefully, the evil things that they used to do end at some point. And what that means usually is either a loss to themselves or a loss to their families. How many of you, when you got saved, your family just didn't quite get it? And they still don't get it. And maybe your relationship with Christ causes those relationships to suffer, to end. You know, I used to think that before I became a Christian, I used to think, well, if I become a Christian, I gotta quit doing this and quit doing that and get rid of all my friends. Well, it was true, but the thing is, it's not because I didn't want to do it. The Holy Spirit now began to work in me, and the things that I thought were bad, I wanted to get rid of. The things I thought weren't good, I wanted to do. And because of that, the people I used to hang around with didn't want to hang around with me anymore. And so that happened by attrition, you know, it just naturally happened. It wasn't like I had to go up to them and say, okay, I'm gonna quit being your friend, I'm gonna quit being your friend, and I'm gonna quit being your friend. No, that happens just by normal Christian growth. Either they still wanna be around you because you're a great person, or they see things in your life that really bug them and they don't wanna be around you. And so at one point, things are gonna change. And you're gonna end relationships, you're gonna get new relationships. And when this girl became a believer and lost that, the, the enemy in her life, all of a sudden, the people who were profiting by that and her lifestyle now changed. When you become a Christian, your lifestyle changes. And sometimes it's not easy at first, but it's always the best thing to do. Ephesians 4.22 says, throw off your old evil nature and your former way of life, which is rotten through and through full of lust and deception. Instead, there must be a spiritual renewal of your thoughts and attitudes. You must display a new nature because you are a new person, created in God's likeness, righteous, holy, and true. So put away all falsehood and tell your neighbor the truth. Verse 28 says, if you're a thief, stop stealing. It's pretty easy. When transformation takes place, There are things in our life that will automatically need to change. You may not want to do it at first, or you may want to do it at first. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes God delivers you from that, other times you have to work through it. But these are all things that as believers, your life begins to change a little bit. And when this transformation takes place, sometimes those around you won't like it either. Paul and Silas in verse 19 says they were dragged into the marketplace to face the authorities. People get upset when you become a Christian sometimes. And it may be a negative thing for you. 
I know people who have gotten saved and their families disown them. And I know people who have gotten saved and their family was so adamant against that because they were from another faith. They were so adamant against that, but they kept railing on them and railing on them all the time. Hard situation. And actually, they they chose to give in. The opposition they faced from their family members was so intense, they just said, I'm not... I'm not doing this anymore. I can't face this opposition. But as Christians, we have to be able to come to the point where, and we don't want to make anyone upset, but we have to take a stand, even if it's against family. Now, the Bible doesn't say we we leave. We're not a cult. We don't leave our family. We love them. We want to be with them, but they have to understand where we are in our walk. And if they're good with that, that's great but I can't let their negativity change where I am with Christ. Sometimes when we come to Christ for forgiveness and we seek to change our lives, our family and friends won't understand it and they're gonna get upset with that change. They may get upset with you, with the church, or they may get upset at the preacher because of what he did to get you that way. And for those of us who share the gospel, we need to be ready for that opposition. Are we ready to face that kind of negativity when we share with someone else? How many have ever prayed for a holy boldness? That's my phrase. Lord, give me boldness when I talk to someone. Not arrogance, not cockiness, but being able to talk to someone boldly, fluently, so that they're able to understand and not be afraid of what their response is gonna be. Verse 20 and 21 says, the whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted. They are teaching people to do things that are against Roman customs. So what's the first thing the officials do? They bring up nationality. They knew that the crowd amongst them was anti-Semitic. And so what they do, these Jews are doing this. They appealed to the negativity in the crowd. Kind of, we see that today, right? Right? Christians today, while not as blatant as those singled out, receive the same type of opposition or grouping into a category. Those Christians. When we say Jesus is the only way, man, people get upset. People really get upset at that. And so when we say that as Christians, That's why we're lumped into a category as well. Those Christians are making us do this. Those Christians are denying us this. Those Christians want us, when in fact, we don't want to deny anybody anything. We just want to tell them what the truth is and that what they're doing is wrong. That's always comes across well. Like being told that what you're doing is wrong or that everything you've been taught your entire life is wrong. Now, we, we understand the truth. But when you talk to someone about that, that's basically what you're saying. Everything you've been taught from a little child up to now is wrong, but I have the truth. Sometimes we forget how hard that might be for someone to receive. And so that's why we have to love on them and let them see what Jesus is sometimes more than talking to them. 
They also use the racial pride issue. The Jews are coming against us Romans. There's a segregation there. It's an us versus them. Just like today. It's un-American to say that there's one way. It's un-American to say things are right and certain things are wrong. Those Christians are affecting our way of life by telling us what things are right and wrong. Who are they to tell me that this is wrong? Who are they to say that this is right and that I need to be doing this? Acts 16.22, a mob quickly formed around Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So he took no chances but put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. How about that for an altar call? When you leave the church today, there's police out there waiting to throw you in jail. Anybody want to get saved? We hear how God is going to just make your life perfect and everything's going to be awesome. But in reality, if you look at the Bible, everyone except for John was martyred. And John was exiled on an island. Their life was full of beatings and whippings and prisons and stuff, and yet they stuck true. Now in America, we're not there yet. But in many other countries, that's where they are right now. Christians are jailed simply for preaching the gospel. And while we don't want to be there yet, and they don't want to be in jail, it doesn't stop them from doing it. I'm going to close with this article from Newsweek. Now, if you know Newsweek, Newsweek is no friend to Christianity as a magazine. But it says this, the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today, quote, than any time in history. And Western governments are failing to stop it, a report from a Catholic organization said. The study by the group Aid to the Church in Need said that the treatment of Christians has worsened substantially in the past two years compared with the two years prior and has grown more violent than any other in modern times. Not only are Christians more persecuted than any other faith group, but ever-increasing numbers are experiencing the very worst forms of persecution. That is what they suffered in Bible days. And that's what they're suffering in other parts of the world today. They said the number one, I don't know if we have that graphic or not. We had a graphic. The number one persecutor of Christians, which country, what do you think it would be? North Korea. And I think China was running a close second behind them simply for being a Christian. Now, we don't like to hear sermons like this because we want everything to be rainbows and sunshine. But it's not. I was talking, I was talking to Linda. We've been praying for a, a gentleman for her on Wednesday nights, and she told me this morning that his cancer is worsened. And it's getting faster, is that what you said? And she said, we don't, we don't know why that happens, but that's part of life. 
part of life. That bad things happen to people. Bad things happen to good people that we can't explain. Persecution happens to Christians who do nothing but share love in Christ. The question is, as Christians, do we still serve God in spite of it? Do we still have, as Paul had, the discerning of spirits to determine what we face in our world, what's right, what's wrong, and be able to make a choice based on that? And not listen to things that sound good and sound like you, something you want to hear. Man, I really need to hear that. And some of them are. But when you hear those things, ask for a discerning spirit. Ask God to give you wisdom. Is this really biblical or not? And now we're going to get to Acts 17 in a few weeks. But Acts 17 talks about the people in Berea. The Bible says the people in Berea were more noble than anybody else because what they searched out the scripture to see what Paul said if it was true. So Paul was commending them for checking them out. If they're checking out the apostle Paul to make sure that he's right, how much more should we be checking out people we listen to, including me? Now next week, we're gonna see how God used their jail time to save an entire family. Would you stand as we close this morning? We don't always see the end from the beginning. In fact, we never see the end from the beginning. We only see what's happening right in front of us. How many have really wanted God to show you what's gonna happen down the road? Be nice to see something that's gonna happen a year from now, two years from now. But I'm not sure about you, but I get enough to see for one day. And then tomorrow I get enough for the next day. That's how God works. We have a little time. Is the whole team here? Can we close with that last song again? The uh, freedom. Freedom reigns. There's a, uh, I'm working on something that uh, talks, of, in my language, it's, Get along there, Logie. How many have ever seen the implosion of a building? Now, why do they do that? Why can't they just tear it down brick by brick, or why can't they just reuse the building? Because it generally it's worn out, right? Not work, can't use it for what it is. And so in, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how does that relate to what we do as Christians, what we do as a church? And one of the, all the articles I read, they talk, they compare, they talk about churches, that they, things they do now versus things they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And while that's what most of us remember, those things don't apply anymore. Those methods don't apply, those things. And in my mind, the phrase, blow up everything, comes to mind. And that means... Nothing is above change or radical transformation in order to push this church into the second, you know, 2019, 2020, and beyond. So that means everything's on the table. And when we think about things, how we can reach the community, how are we doing things now, are they working? 
Nothing is safe from change. The only constant in life is what? Change. Everything is changing. And we have to be ready to be able to change with that. And what that means is we don't know yet. But next year and the years beyond, we have to be ready to step out and do things we've never done before. Change things we've never changed before. Why? Because if they're working, it's great. If they're not working, we're going to change them. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over again if it's not working. That's the, what did Einstein say? That's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So next year, in the year beyond that, gloves are off. We want to really make a radical difference in this area. And that's going to involve all of us. Not just me. All of us. Amen? All right, let's, I'm done. Jesus.
Father, we thank you so much. You have given us freedom, not only in you, freedom from having to obey the law and offer sacrifices and all the things your law require. We're free from all of that. And we can have a one-on-one relationship with you. We no longer have to have someone intercede for us. You intercede for us. And we can pray directly to our Father through Jesus. But we're also free in this country to be able to share the gospel. Not always easy, but we're free to do it. And as we sang earlier, you are coming back. You are returning soon. And we need to be about the Father's business. So Lord, I pray that you'd reinstill in each one of us
a spirit of excitement, a spirit of expectation. Open up divine appointments for us, Lord. Help us to analyze the things that we're doing in our life and in our church and help us to be open to what you want to do. There may be things that you have planned that we don't even know about. But God, we are open to those. We pray that you would speak to me, speak to us to be able to affect change in this community, to touch lives. Help us to be encouraged by what we hear, what we read. Help us to be discerning. And then help us to keep moving forward. We can't just sit still. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here as they begin this new year. Anoint them, equip them, send them out, Lord. Help us to be a refilling station here so that when we leave here, we are energized and filled with your spirit to accomplish your will in our world today. We thank you for how you've saved us and we believe that you'll save many more through us if we're faithful to you. Keep us close to your heart, Lord. Protect us, guard us, keep us healthy. Touch those who are sick today. Allow them to really experience a healing. Let the word of God be verified by the healings and the miracles that you do and let people see the reality of Christ in those miracles. So Father, I commit each person to you. You fill us, you send us, you use us as you will. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen, Amen. have a blessed new year. Be safe, and we will see you Wednesday night.